0: scriptures, I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4, and if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, I hope that you will use one of the Pew Bibles so that you can keep us accountable. We um, acknowledge that there is no authority from this pulpit, from this lectern that isn't from the Bible. So uh, please make sure that we are speaking to you from the truth, that only truth that matters, and that is God's Word. So it's page 940. If you're using a Pew Bible, I hope you'll follow along. Um, as a child, actually as a teenager and even older, I have always enjoyed the Guinness Book of World Records. We used to have a copy in our home as a kid and of a book of the updated versions and then there was a telev- television program that you could watch from time to time and, we, and when Becky and I went on our anniversary, our, anniversary our, uh, our honeymoon, we went to Prince Edward Island and they actually had a... Um, Guinness Book of World Records placed there, too, that we were able to enjoy. Um, I guess these kinds of little-known trivia facts just um, excite me. I think they're interesting. Um, the one that I always um, am reminded of is, is uh, Lee Redman. She was the one who holds the record for the longest fingernails. Um, uh, she grew them for 30 years without cutting them. Uh, on February 23rd, 2008, she set the record, and right after that, she was in an accident, a, a, a car accident. She wasn't hurt, but her fingernails were destroyed. But she did make the record before that happened, and altogether, they were 28 feet long. And now on the thumb, the, those were all together. The longest fingernail was on her right thumb. It was almost three foot long. Now, please look at the picture later, but when you see the picture, it's pretty disgusting. Um, they also have, according to the authority of the Guinness Book of World Records, the heaviest man who ever lived was 1069 pounds that is a big man um, the world record for bearing children the guinness book of world records says that a, the, the record for amount of children that one woman has born 69 now that was a russian peasant woman evidently she was appropriately honored by the tsar after having that many children but the breakdown eight sets of twins three sets of triplets four sets of quadruplets Um, you know, I guess if you do the math, you come up with 69. So, amazing. And some of you thought you had a lot of kids. But um, but I found an error. I actually found two errors in uh, the Guinness Book of World Records because they have the oldest woman to give birth, and that's where I'm going with this. I promise you I have a, a plan. The oldest woman to ever give birth, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, was 57 years old. But that's inaccurate. And you should know that because our text this morning tells us That there was actually a woman who gave birth at 90 years of age. And that should have been included in the Guinness Book of World Records. But maybe that tells you a little bit about their worldview. I'm not sure. But Romans 4 also speaks of this. From Genesis 17, Romans 4. That there was a woman named Sarah who gave birth at 90 years of age. But the star of the show actually in this particular passage is neither the mother or the father. It is... Jesus Christ because he's the one that justifies but it's Abraham's belief that's highlighted that he believed God that he would actually allow him to have a son and that that son would be given to him when he was at 99 years of age and she was at 90. I want you to see really the theme I believe of verses 9 to 25 ambitious today I think we'll be able to cover that we did it in the first service I think we can do it again but if you'll notice in verse 20 of our text and we're going to read the text along with the message today. But really, this is the theme. And you'll notice that at the end of verse twenty 21, actually, it's the entirety of the verse. It says, fully convinced, this is Abraham, that God was able to do what he had promised. Here it is again. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, I want us to say those nine words together, the latter part of it. But I want to change the tense because the tense was present tense. At the time that Abraham believed God. So I want us to to have this as our theme this morning. God is able to do what he has promised. Can you say that with me? God is able to do what he has promised. One more time. God is able to do what he has promised. Now Romans chapter 4, you may recall from two weeks ago, we started this chapter. The first eight verses introduced to us an example of those great vocabulary words that we're memorizing in Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 to 26. The key highlighted word is justification. What is it? Justification. Now, a good working definition of justification is ones that many of, of us have heard in this room. And I think it's appropriate. Justification. Being viewed by God just as if we've never sinned. I think that's helpful. The word means God's free grace and his free grace acting to declare us Righteous even though we're unrighteous, and he maintains his righteousness. So justification, as the title of this sermon um, indicates, is having a perfect credit score. Now, just as a reminder, this whole chapter is focused on Abraham, and you may be asking why. Well, Abraham was Israel's greatest patriarch, and so these Jewish Christians needed to hear about Abraham. But their greatest, most popular king was obviously King David. So in this passage, the first eight verses, he's going to deal with Abraham and David. And Abraham particularly, that Abraham was justified through faith. And that happened in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. You may recall that the other reason why he chose Abraham was because there were Jewish Christians there that needed to understand that this gospel of free grace... That God will declare righteous, unrighteous people was not a plan B. This was not like a second try at it. That the Jews had their gospel and they were saved through works. And now the Gentiles could be saved through faith. He says, oh no, we'll go back to your patriarch. He was justified, he was credited as righteous in the Old Testament as far back as Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. The other thing he needed to do was not only remind the Jews that this was not a plan B, but to remind the Gentile Christians. Remember, they're all in the same audience here in this letter of Romans being read to them. And they're having conflicts that we find even in Romans 14 about, you know, kosher eating and drinking. um, And these are issues of conscience. But there's other things that they're struggling with about how much of the, the... the civil or the ceremonial law should these Gentile Christians submit to. And so these Gentile Christians also needed to hear that their faith, this gospel that is preaching to them God's free grace, is not something new either. It's something rooted in the Old Testament history and God's revelation to man. Now, what we looked at last two weeks ago in Romans chapter 4 verses 1 to 8 is this major point that You cannot be justified by works. And Abraham demonstrates that. Do you remember that? In Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, Paul asks a question. He answers his own questions. And his own question was, what did we learn about our father Abraham? Was he justified by works? And what was Paul's answer? No, he was not justified by works. So his point in verses 1 to 8 is, no one is declared righteous because of any good deed they present to God. So it doesn't mean if you have national privilege because you're a Jew. It doesn't mean if you're personally very spiritual and you have a lot of piety. None of that will work. In fact, he says, what do the Scriptures say? And that's an excellent question for us to ask, yes? What do the Scriptures say? And the Scriptures say in Genesis 15, 16, 15 6 that he was declared righteous through what? Faith. So what we find later in this passage is David in Psalm 32 After confessing his sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband, he said, blessed, happy is the one who God doesn't impute their sin against them. He doesn't credit their sin against them. He forgives them. And that word impute I mentioned to you two weeks ago means to credit to someone's account. And that's where I get the title of this message. Now, my understanding, a perfect credit score, which I've never had, is 850 points. My understanding further, though, is if you have an um, 850-point credit score, um, that you won't have it long. That it is basically a snapshot. That's what your credit score is, and they fluctuate. So maintaining an 850, if that's the requirement, is, is impossible. There's a very small percentage of people that ever get an 850 credit score, and when they do get it, they can't maintain it. There are those that view justification that way. I mentioned to you two weeks ago that there is a whole denomination, if we could call it that, the Roman Catholics believe that justification is infused and it's something that you need to maintain, and that if you don't confess your sins and do all of the things that you're commanded to do or or ordered to do or or guided to do um, before your death, you will still have a balance to pay, and that's why purgatory was invented but what we see in the scriptures here is he says Abraham was not declared righteous because of his works he was declared righteous simply because he believed but I want us to see today a few more further aspects to this these assertions about Abraham so the first one is Abraham was not justified by works but let's remind ourselves of the big picture and I want to say it again God is able to do what he has promised can you say it with me again God is able to do what he has promised. And that's what he's going to uncover for us once again here. The second point is, Abraham was not justified through circumcision. Abraham was not justified through circumcision. Let's read verses 9 to 12 together. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the first question was, was Abraham justified by works? Answer? Second question, is justification only for Jewish Christians? Okay, you're getting ahead of me. Is it only for circumcised? Is it only for those who kept the ceremonial law? So this is his second question, so what he's going to do to answer it is he's going to bring Abraham back. And he's going to say there was a situation in Abraham's life, and the chronology, the timing of it, helps us answer this question. Is justification only available for those who are circumcised? Is it only a Jewish gift? Well, here's how he answers the question. It's almost as if, and we're not sure about this, this is entirely speculative of me that the Apostle Paul, while writing this under the inspiration of the Scripture, goes, hey, I just thought of something. When was Abraham declared righteous? Was it before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? And, and then the point, you can almost, the rabbis all thought, they taught, they still teach, that the reason why Abraham was justified by faith was because he was circumcised and because he kept the law. In fact, they take Genesis fifteen six and they misinterpret it. They say it's not because of his faith, his trust, it was his faithfulness. So what they teach is that actually the opposite of what verses 1 to 8 taught us, that he was declared righteous because of what he had accomplished. So here Paul, very ingenious, he says, wait, 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 let's talk about the timing of this. If he was justified or declared righteous because he submitted to the rite of circumcision, then that must have come before Did the circumcision come before he was justified or after? Well, he asked the question differently. He says, was he justified before circumcision or after? What's the answer? Before. Do you see that in the text? He says that it was not after. He says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but what? Before. Is everybody with me? So the chronology is he's saying he was declared righteous In Genesis 15, if you're reading through your Bible, some of us are right now, you'll find that he is not circumcised until when? Genesis 17. There's at least 14 years between the two. So Paul's taking a really simple argument here and he's saying there's no way that he was justified, declared righteous because he was circumcised, because he was circumcised at least 14 years after he was declared righteous. Do you see what he's doing here? Shake your head if you do, okay? Okay, we can move on. So he says circumcision was not the reason or the grounds for his justification, but I do want you to see he says circumcision, while it's separate from when he was declared righteous, they're not unrelated. You see, God gave Abraham two gifts. He gave his people two gifts. The first gift was justification through faith, and then the sign of that justification, that authenticity, that authenticity. That identity of the male children of the Jewish community being circumcised on the eighth day. This was the sign, the seal of the Old Covenant. This was a reminder that you were part of the people of God. So he's not saying that circumcision was unimportant, but he's saying they're separate. One came after the other. And the one was not, it was a symbol, a sign of the other. It was not what was signified. That's where we find a similarity with baptism. I want to be careful here because that's not the topic of this message, but I do want us to understand that there's probably very few, if any, in this room that would ever consider circumcision as being something that would curry favor for you from God. But there is perhaps the real possibility of someone in this room right now thinking that being baptized would curry favor with you from God. And what we need to remind ourselves is is that there is not an apples for apples comparison here with circumcision in the old covenant as the seal and sign and baptism of the new. There's really very few passages that connect those two. One of which you would want to look at later is in Colossians 2 that mentions both of them. The differences are a few. But I want you to see the similarities here. The similarities with circumcision as a mark or a symbol, a sign of the old covenant, and baptism a sign of the new. They both have to be reminded that there is a timing, and we cannot confuse the order. Abraham believed God, and he was what? Then he was circumcised. And that order was supposed to be the foundation for these readers and for us today to hear that salvation was not by performing any right or submitting to any right. And I want to suggest to you and remind you that baptism, similarly, is a sign of something that has happened internally. It is an important sign. It's a sign that the scriptures tell us it's almost like staccato beat in the New Testament that a person believes and they were baptized. A person believes and they were baptized. In fact, we see very little gap between people believing and being baptized. We live in a different time period and now we have these large gaps and we even have categories of unbaptized believers. And you'll look over the New Testament and you don't find that. But the point here is the sign and the timing and keeping the sign from being confused with what it signifies is of vital importance. You see what I'm saying? So what he's saying here is the sign of circumcision, or we could say the sign of baptism, should never be confused with what it signifies because it has no value to do what it signifies. And what it signifies is God justifying the sinner. You say, where are you going with this? Well, I just want to apply it for a moment. In circumcision, there was an involuntary side to that. They were, again, circumcised the eighth day, the males, the Jewish males, and it was a sign that they were part of the Jewish community of faith. With baptism, we see in John 10, where the Lord Jesus says, those who are of my flock, they will follow me. There will be belief in Christ. And so there is no involuntary following of Jesus like you see with circumcision. But what I want us to be careful of is there is the real possibility, as I just mentioned, of people being confused, of Christians being confused, or even professing Christians being confused, to believe that being dunked or sprinkled or poured with water somehow has a saving effect or a justifying effect on your life. I want us to be clear as we read the scriptures here that there is no teaching that circumcision or any other religious rite can do anything more than be a big sign that something supernatural has happened internally. Yes? So what he's saying is if you think that Abraham was justified because he did something religious, like, even like circumcision, as valuable as it is, You're missing the understanding that justification, being declared righteous, being saved, has nothing to do with one's baptismal status. Again, I don't want to diminish the rite of baptism, but I want us to be very clear that the sign and that which it signifies cannot be confused. And that is what he's teaching here in Romans chapter 4. I would say the same thing. There are some that we'll talk about when you ask them about their walk with Christ They'll talk about how long they've been a member of this church or some other church. Folks, I believe church membership is important. Those of you that know me well know that I talk a lot about it whenever I get a chance. I think it's very important. But church membership, baptism, all of the various opportunities of service in a local church, all of those things are good, yes, but none of them are saving. Some of them are signs, some of them are results of saving faith. But none of them can be mistaken for the significance of we are saved by God's free, justifying grace. And that's his point here. So third, before we go to third, let's repeat the phrase that I believe is significant here, and we're building towards it. Verse 21 again, God is able to do what he has promised. Can you say that with me? God is able to do what he has promised. One more time. God is able to do what he has promised. So first eight verses Abraham was not justified through works. The next few verses, from verses nine to verse number 12, he was not justified by circumcision. Now I want you to see he was not justified by the law. He goes further, look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying Abraham was not justified through the law. That means no works no circumcision and no law. Again, I want you to understand Paul is saying, one came a long time after the other. Genesis 15:6 was a promise without conditions, without requirements attached to it. It was God's gracious offer. It was a promise. And the promise was, "Believe me, and you will be counted to you for what? For righteousness." Now, I want you to understand, first of all, he's going to say that Abraham was not justified through the law by simple history. If you go to Galatians, you should jot this cross-reference down in your scriptures. Galatians 3.17, Paul's making the same point. He says the law didn't come for how many years after circumcision? 430 years. So not only did, did, did Abraham not get it, Moses received it, right, at Mount Sinai. So his point is, Abraham didn't even have the law. He didn't have the Ten Commandments. He didn't have all 900 other commandments that are going to be given in the future. So historically, there's no way for us to say Abraham achieved his own righteousness, which is taught again by the rabbis today, by keeping the law. It wasn't even written. It wasn't even issued by God. But I also want you to see the language and the logic here. There's some language and logic that Paul uses, and he says that there are certain words, and I need you to be thinking here. So if you just visited another planet, I know how easy that is. You can be thinking about the game that's coming, or you can be thinking about the crushing game that happened last night, if you're like me. But but whatever your situation is, come back. Come back here. This is important. There are certain words that God uses, and he only uses them in certain categories. And when we confuse those categories, we confuse the gospel. Now, I want you to notice, there's some, some words here he uses, and they fit in one category, one drawer, but they do not fit in the other. God uses them simultaneously, but they cannot be confused. And if you confuse them, it could be damning. So what he says here is, he says, listen, there, it was a promise given, and promises are given. Promises have to be received, and they have to be believed. Law has to be obeyed. You see the difference? In fact, it's this way. These are the words of law. Law is you shall or shall not, yes? Okay, sometimes us parents are guilty for given laws. Okay, you shall and you shall not, or else, right? That's law. What do promises say, I will? So a law, in the language of law, is thou shalt or thou shalt not, to use the King James English, and promises have I will. There's also a difference. With law, it is obey. With promises is believe. Are you hearing this category change? And then there's obey and I will bless you with law. With promises, I will bless you, just believe me. Which one was the promise of justification that that Abraham enjoyed? Was it a promise or was it law? Let's think about it a little further. Here's the progression. Here's what law does. Law makes a demand, thou shalt or thou shalt not. When we violate the law, what happens? We know we've transgressed or trespassed. You don't know you've trespassed somebody's property unless they put a sign up that says, know what? Trespassing, right? Okay, but if there's no law there, I don't know that I'm trespassing. Doesn't mean I'm not trespassing, but I don't know that I'm trespassing. So what he's saying is when there's a law, that highlights that when you've trespassed. And whenever you trespass, you know that I've incurred wrath from God. So the highway of law is a dead end. It's an eternal dead end. Is everybody with me? So here are the signposts on the road of law. The highway of law has these signposts. It has laws, then it has transgressions when you've broken the law, and you know at the end there, there's going to be wrath coming. Now let's look at another highway. This other highway that he contrasts is one of promise. God in his grace gives a promise, and if we believe it, there's blessing. Which highway are you on right now? Now, some of you remember before GPS became something every phone had, and we had flip phones, and we had some way of communicating while we were in the car. If you're geographically challenged like me, I remember distinctly being on the phone and speaking to someone and saying, well, I see a Walmart up here. Am I close? You know, you're talking about like, like spots and places on the road to see if you're close. Maybe you're trying to get to their house, and you're talking to them on the phone. You don't have a GPS. So what you can do is they can help navigate you to their home. Do you recognize this highway? Some of you are traveling it right now. You're on a highway hoping that at the end of the highway there'll be a declaration of you are righteous, you are received and accepted by God. But you're on a highway that has law and you are transgressing it every second of your life and the end of that is the wrath of God. And what he's saying is if Abraham had been on that highway, thinking that at the end of his life he would receive a declaration of righteousness, it would have been an eternal dead end. But that's not how he received the promise. He said that would have have destroyed the promise. He uses a Greek word here that says he basically would have vacated or emptied the promise because it cannot be of grace if it's not received by faith. So he gives this other highway. The other highway is God gives promises. And God gives those promises by his grace. And your responsibility and my responsibility is simply to believe. It cannot be of grace if it's not by faith. Do you see that? So he's using some real logic here. And I know this is a little more heady part of the message. But Paul loves to do this. He loves to use this tightly packed logic to say these are two separate highways These are two separate approaches to God. I want you to see now, though, that Abraham was justified through faith. And he's going to give us an example that's going to teach us more about more than just justification. It's going to teach us about God's promises and his faithfulness. But let's remind ourselves of the theme again. God is able to do what he has promised. Can you say that again? God is able to do what he has promised. One more time. God is able to do what he has promised. So the text he's dealt with, Abraham was not justified by works. Abraham was not justified by circumcision. Abraham was not justified by the law. There wasn't even a law. 430 years later, the law came. But now he's got to say, well, how was Abraham justified? Again, through faith. Look at it with me in verse 17. He says in verse 17, he says as it is written I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God two descriptions of this great God don't miss this in whom Abraham believed what did Abraham know about his God why did he trust his God why do we struggle trusting God maybe you question one of these two mega truths here they are he believed two things about God he he didn't deny the obstacles to his faith but he believed in two massive truths about God what are they? Here they are. He believed that he was the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told by God, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered two major obstacles. You said, well, these aren't that big. These are huge. The promise was you're going to have a child. Okay, what kind of obstacles can you have there? Here they are. He considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver or second guess concerning the what? The promise of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced. Say it with me. God is able to do what he has. One more time. God is able to do what he has promised. So I want you to see faith reasonableness here. Sometimes when you hear, well, Abraham's justified by faith, I know what faith is. Faith is just kind of believing against evidence and just kind of throwing yourself out there, throwing reason and logic to the wind. That's not what we see in this text at all. Abraham's going to square up against the obstacles, but he's going to compare the promise-keeping God and who he is with the obstacles. That's how his faith overcame the obstacles. Do you see it here? Now, look what he does here. He, he's not going to say that faith is superstition, is credulous, it's um, make-believe, it's hoping that things will turn out just great, even if ever, all the evidence points differently. Here's what faith is. Hear this. Faith is believing or trusting that a person is trustworthy. So the pro- promises become reasonable if the person making the promise is completely what? Trustworthy. So reasonableness depends on trustworthiness. Reliability depends on the person you trust. So here's the question for all of us today. Do we believe God is trustworthy? I know we all want to shout amen because that's what we're supposed to do. But how did you face the last obstacle that contradicted the promises of God in your life? See, it's always reasonable to trust a trustworthy person, right? It's reasonable. There's no one more trustworthy than God, yes. He never lies. He always keeps his promises, promises made, promises kept. He's trustworthy. What were these two massive truths? Now, just think for a moment. This is like the hood on Abraham's head got opened up. Okay, I don't want to be graphic, but it got opened up. The wing nuts are taken off, and you're kind of able to see how he's thinking. This is a neat moment. How was Abraham thinking? So let's put things on two sides of the categories. Okay, two categories. So he's got the categories over here, these obstacles to the promise. He's been promised you're going to have so many kids that you're going to bless the whole world. You're not even going to be able to number how many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids you're going to have. It's going to be like the stars of the heavens. Everybody knows if you're going to have that many great-great-great-great-grandkids, you've got to have what first? A kid and so he, he, you know, he gets to 70, 75, and you know, he gets this, this promise, and he you know, comes home from devotions one day, and he comes into the tent, and he says, uh, Sarah, I had, a, had some good devotions today. Well, what, what did God tell you? What did, what did you learn? What did he speak to you? He, he told us we're going to have a baby. <laughs> now, you know that later on Sarah laughed. That's why they named him Laughter. Okay? <laughs> so, so they're laughing at this. So these are the obstacles that Abraham has. So he got the promise, and he's been year after year. I mean, so he's coming up to 99. And we're told in Hebrews, in in very mature, modest language, that she had infertility at that point and barrenness, and he had virility at that point, or the lack of it, and he was not able to have a child. I mean, this is really obvious here. And he realizes, I'm old, she's old, she's past childbearing years, I'm past being able to father a child, but there's this promise over here. So how do you meet obstacles like that with a promise on the table? Well, you've got to know something about the trustworthiness of the person who made the promise. He gives two things about this trustworthiness. Here they are. They may surprise you. Here they are in the text. Look at it with me. He says that he trusted him because number one, he's the God who gives life to dead people. (laughs) So I'm going to trust him because he's a God who gives life to who what kind of people? Dead people. Second reason he's going to trust him is he calls things out of nothing. In other words, he's the creator and he's the resurrector. So he resurrects dead people from the grave and he created everything ex nihilo, which means out of nothing according to Hebrews eleven six, 6. So because he's the creator God and because he's the great resurrecting God, I can trust him even in spite of my, bar- my, my wife's barrenness and my inability to father children. It's why A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, what comes to your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. So when you come up against the promises of God that seem to obstinately push up against and stubbornly push up against the the very obstacles that you have. The promises seem to be contradicted by the inability for these things to actually happen. And in this context, it's being justified by God's free grace. What do you go to? What do you turn to? Well, Abraham turned to two things. We don't even know about any resurrections happening before Genesis 15 or 17. We do know, according to Hebrews 11, the author there says that he thought when he took Isaac to sacrifice him, that even if he sacrificed him, God was able to raise him from the dead. He did know about creation, though, and he did know that God spoke everything into existence in six literal days. So this understanding he's a creator and this understanding that he is a resurrector was all that he needed to do to bring to his promise his problems and say I'm gonna trust the promises it was actually the most reasonable thing he could have ever done so here's a question for all of us this morning how reasonable is your trust this is reasonable trust that's the kind of faith that's being described here that he weighed who God was and then he looked at his problems and he chose The most reasonable thing to do here is trust the promises of God because he's trustworthy. You wanna know what faith is? Faith is actual, this calculation, that God is the most trustworthy person that I could ever put my full eternal confidence in. I just wanna make a couple applications here because that's what Paul ends with. He says this was not just written for Abraham. If you've ever wondered Do you need to be in your Old Testament? The answer is yes, okay? Because it wasn't just written for them. Does everybody understand that? Here it is in the scriptures. He says in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake, what? Alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, just a couple of trivia points and we're done. In Genesis 15, 6 is the first time in the scriptures that the word belief is mentioned. This is the first time in the scriptures in the New Testament where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is tied with our justification. He says he was delivered on the cross, he was put to death for our sins, and he was raised for our justification, our declaration of righteousness. Now, how do we grow in this kind of faith? Number one, I want to invite anybody who's on that law path right now. You're on that highway of law. You know you've transgressed, but you're hoping you can just do a little better. You're hoping 2022 makes you a little more righteous than 2021. The dead end there, the cul-de-sac, the eternal cul-de-sac is damnation. It's wrath. No one is justified on that highway. So the primary application of this passage is don't try to be justified that way. Amen? So I invite anyone who's on that highway to realize there is a highway that simply calls for you to believe. The promiser is completely trustworthy, and you can put your full soul confidence in him. Amen? I also want to encourage us, though, as we live the life of faith. As believers, many of us in this room, this is not a one and done. The life of faith is constantly believing God over our feelings and over our perceptions. How do we grow in this? First, I want to remind you, don't adopt or claim promises that aren't yours. I do want to caution us here. I've heard people preach on this passage in such a way that at the end of the passage, you were just told you need to name it and claim it. For instance, there's some infertile couples here that have battled infertility for a long time, and they could hear a passage like this, well, maybe I just don't have enough faith. That promise wasn't made to you. The promise that he was referring to is that he would be declared righteous. And through the promise, he did not understand all of the ins and outs of having a son. And the promise that they had that he would bless all of the nations of the earth is that this justification by faith alone would be the same saving message for all the nations that God is claiming for himself. We need to be careful. Sometimes we can claim passages of Scripture out of context And say, that's one mine. And when God doesn't fulfill it, we either think we don't have enough faith or God is not trustworthy. For some of us, there is no promise. And for all of us, actually, there's no promise in the Bible that says you're not going to get a dreadful diagnosis in 2022. There's no promise there. So if you are on the receiving end or I'm on the receiving end of a dreadful diagnosis in 2022, we shouldn't assume that we don't have enough faith, okay? Okay. What we need to do is we need to understand the promises of God that he has delivered to us and make sure those are the ones that we are embracing with trust and confidence. And Romans 10 later on tells us how to do that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? By the words of God. Dear people, we've said a lot about this this month. Be in the Bible If you're allowing or thinking that just coming on Lord's Day, week after week, which is super important, is enough for building faith and trust in your soul without regularly being in the Word, meditating, memorizing, you will find that your faith will wither and you will have the conflict that's described here, that you will waver. And James puts it like this, we're like a double-minded man, unstable in all his what? His ways. Stability comes from allowing the scriptures to own you. Remember how Colossians puts it, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I've said this to you before. Spurgeon said we should know the scriptures so well that if somebody cut us, we would bleed biblene. I don't know that that's a blood type, but it's a good try for us, right? The way we claim the promises of God is to know the promises of God. And here... One last thing Abraham does is he not only knows the promises of God, but he said he, he was strong in faith, and when he started to waver, you know what he did? He glorified God. So when we join together, as we're about to in just a moment, in song again, I want, I want you to remember that part of the worship service, when we join together in verbal praise and we're singing, you're hearing people beside you and behind you, in front of you, we are glorifying God and saying, your promises are secure, you are trustworthy. And we are the community of faith, and we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And we come in here weak, and we come in here discouraged many times because of what we face in this world. We're just pilgrims passing through. This isn't our home. But one of the ways we continue to grow in faith is by this body, by a local body of believers who encourage one another and edify one another. So let's say it one more time. God is able to do what he has promised. Father, thank you for your words. Lord, we have many times wavered. We've been weak. We have estimated the problems that we face and the obstacles to your promises are greater than your trustworthiness. And we repent today and ask for forgiveness for our fear, our lack of trust, our worry lists that are ever-growing. We so often live in the what-if world rather than the you-are world. And we pray that we would um, understand that no matter what the ifs are, the even if is our God is on the throne and you are sovereign and you are leading our lives. And we pray that this example that has been so clearly given to us in the scriptures would be one that we Imitate and we pray these things for the name and sake of Christ. Amen. Let's stand.